Hi there, it's Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy. Before we start today's episode, I just want to thank our sponsor, Michaela Garfinkel, who sponsored today's episode in memory of her mother, Rachelea Bas Chaim Michael. The episode and learning done through today's episode should help her soul have an aliyah in Michaela's words. And I just want to note that this is the third year that Michaela has sponsored an episode in honor of her mother and three is a chazaka. So it feels special to be here on this third year, honoring your mother again with the Torah learning, Torah discussing, Torah embodying of women getting together to discuss and explore their Jewishness and their divine souls. Thank you, Michaela, for making today's episode happen. If you are listening to this and would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast too, you're listening and you're like, I want to get in on this, making Torah happen for women all over the world. You're in luck. You're in the right place. Email us info at humanandholy.com or visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor to sponsor an episode or give to Human and Holy in any amount. We are a nonprofit and all of your donations are tax deductible. Today's episode is a Q&A that we did with Hanu Dubinsky, who we interviewed last week. This is a really fun episode because we put up a question box on Instagram, ask the community for follow-up questions for Hana. They would ask her live. And then we had the opportunity to go, I would say both deeper and lighter with Hana. We went deeper into certain elements of her process and her experience and her journey. And we also went lighter in just talking about jungle life, how she ended up there. But the light and the deep are very closely connected. So this was just a fun, deep question and answer with Hannah Dubinsky. I hope you'll love it. I think you will. We had a great time and it was so special to do this in a community setting with listener input on what they wanted to hear from Hannah and also with community members present joining us, being there for that conversation, giving their feedback in real time. Thank you to everyone who joined us. I can't wait to do something like this again. I hope you love today's episode. Hi. There she is. Hello. Yeah, we did it. Hi. Hi. Oh my gosh. This is so much fun. Part two. Yeah, part two. We made it. I know. I'm so excited. I've never done this before and I think it's going to be really fun because some of the questions are like wanting to know more about your process that you shared in the episode. I feel like it'll be fun to get the audience's take on some of the things that you discussed and like we're digging deeper today, you know? would love them. I'm so excited. This is like... When we were doing the podcast the first time around, I really felt like we were having a conversation with a bunch of people and we were going to meet them one day, but I wasn't sure when. And now is the when. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It's so exciting. Just like being able to open up the conversation. Like right now, I actually feel like it's not just the two of us, or I did feel that when we were recording. Yeah. Now there's like more women people in this conversation, especially because I'm going to ask listener questions, which I'm really excited about. But before I start... 
first, I just want to give you some feedback that I received a couple times. So I'm like, when there's a trend, you have to give it over. But someone messaged me and said she was pausing the podcast because she just like wanted to send feedback in the middle as she's listening. She said just the first couple minutes, like eight, 10 minutes brought her to tears. And she said, this woman is clearly speaking from her soul because she touched mine. And I got that feedback from a few people, which was just that it felt like it was coming from your essence and it penetrated to theirs too, because it was so authentic and so real and like mm, very much from within. So let's lead with that pressure. <laughs> I'm kidding. So much pressure. I feel very emotional. I mean, I felt emotional the whole day today. I don't know why, but I really feel like I was put on Isla Masia. I was put on this earth just to be a genuine Hana. And sometimes that hits home for people and sometimes that does it. And sometimes I'm okay with it and sometimes I'm not. But when the feedback is like this and it's like, oh, I see you. Oh, I see you. Oh, I see you seeing me. Oh, we see each other seeing each other. Like, oh, we're here together. You know, it's really special. And I think there's some sort of Kabbalistic source for it. I could be making this up where there's always this number of six repeated, like 600,000 Jews leaving Mitzrayim, 600 something at the foot of Harsinai. And I'm not sure again, if this is true, someone please tell me if it is. But what I remember hearing is that there are six sources of like soul clusters. So when you meet someone and you're like, I know you, it's because like your neshamas are kind of like related. So. Yeah, it's very special for me and whoever shared that. Thank you. I love that you said that because you actually ended the conversation with that when you said that like being held and seen by people Mm -hmm. in your entirety helps you create that cohesion between different parts of who you are. And so it's such a beautiful full circle moment where you kind of did that for other people and Mm -hmm. then they in turn are doing that for you. Yeah, we're literally all here together. Okay, so... I opened up to some listener questions. I'll start with some from your family and friends. <laughs> First, your aunt wants to know when you're coming to visit her. Thank you. <laughs> what? Was that Joe or? Devara. I just said your aunt. Like, it's not your aunt. It's your sister-in-law. <laughs> oh my my sister-in-law Devara in South Carolina. Yeah, 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 yeah. I called her your aunt. We're spending Shabbos together in like a week and a half. Okay, so, so there you go. She got it. Me. Okay, the next one okay, from your yeah, friend who I, I don't know. But I guess here's her great ultimate test is who's your BFF and why? Hi, Kathleen. Just because of Shamina that way. <laughs> and then everybody else. I have a lot of other best friends. But, but, yes. you, but you knew that she's the one who submitted that. Yeah, she's my sister. Yes. I mean, I have a okay. lot of sisters. That's amazing. Sister. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to start a bit light and then we'll get a little bit deeper. But let's start a little bit just talking about what you do and where you live. Because you're on Shlokas in Costa Rica, which is a very... As far as Shlokas opportunities go, it's a bit of an alternative one. So tell us a little bit about what it looks like. First of all, how it happened. And then practically, like, what does your life look like there? Okay, very good question. And I would say just at the outset that the image that people have of Costa Rica, it's Santa Teresa is that on steroids. I call this place rugged for rich people because it's super rugged, you know, unpaved roads, electricity is in and out, et cetera. But things are super expensive and it's like, It's cool. People are in their four by fours. They're surfing. Everybody looks like a model. It's a cool place to pasty family walking down the street, fully garbed. It's a jungle. Let me put it that way. It's definitely a jungle. There are 300 Jews who live here, mostly Israeli. I recently found out that they all came here after the second Intifada. So they 
kind of ran away from all the chaos. They're mm-hmm. Sephardic Jews. They're beautiful. We've been very, very embraced. And there are lots of tourists. So we thought we were coming to deal with tourists. And we weren't aware of how big the community was. So we've kind of just been busy over the past 15 months, stepping into an already established Beit Knesset, mm-hmm. taking over that, and slowly, slowly doing our own thing. We homeschool our son, Ronnie, and yeah, we do kosher food for people. We do lots of shiurim and women's services and one-on-one learning. I take women to the mikvah in the ocean, which is very, very scary sometimes and very magical other times. So I'm learning to really be in touch with Mother Earth Mm. and know what time of month and during what season it's okay to go into the ocean and when it's not. But yeah, lots of that. It's actually life-threatening and when it's not. Yeah. And actually, halakhically, you're not allowed to go in if you're scared. I didn't know that. Yes, the Chachamim are amazing. They're amazing. Okay, so tell us like one notable mikvah story, if you want to. Okay. The first woman I took to mikvah was a Tunisian woman. She was in her 40s. She was married to her first cousin. They got married, I think, when they were 13 and 14. And it was the first woman I took. And I was like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, you know, it's the ocean. And she was just like, yes, of course. Yeah, of course. No, I'm, I'm doing this. There's no question. You know, I've been doing it for like 300 years. There's no, and we, we go into the ocean and it was a clear night. And there was this like tall rock formation behind us. And there was this, like this little pool of water and the moon was on top of the rock formation. And I just felt, Oh, I'm a Jewish woman. Oh, I get it now. Like Sari Menu was there. It was like that unbroken line of Jewish woman. And I felt it. And what was so special was that she was so chill about it. Like, yeah, of course, of course I was 13 years old when I got married to my first cousin and I'm still going to make fun. I love it. And I'll do it when I'm in Costa Rica in the ocean. And that was very cool. Yeah. That was a cool story. In a way, the fact that it wasn't waited for her made it even more profound. Yeah, for me, definitely. You know, it wasn't like deep and spiritual and cool for her. It was just obvious, which was very cool to me. What about that is moving to you? It was very real to her. It wasn't a performance. It wasn't a costume. It was just very real and natural. Like she was breathing and she cooks her Tunisian food and she goes to the mikveh. And this is what I do as a Jewish woman. And I, as a Chabad Chassid, I think need to think more and be more intentional. But I'm amazed when I see Jewish people just living as Jews. It's very beautiful to me. It's just like a selfish thing. I I love watching Jewish people be Jewish. No, but I think that you're seeing something very deep, which is just that it's a part of who she is in this like very deep elemental way that it's like, she cooks her food and she goes to the mikvah and like, she can't extricate herself from like her identity cannot be extricated from mikvah, which is a very deep connection to have with the mitzvah. And I think that that's, even when we have all of that intention and like the intellectual backstory to a mitzvah, I think that is something that we crave and that we want to bring, which is that our personal identities are like, I go to the mikvah. That's who I am. And I think also the fact that she was from Tunisia, there was like a certain I don't know. Like it reminded me of the Imahais. I don't know. They probably looked more like her than they look like me. And it was like this unbroken chain that I got to feel connected to. Yeah. So that was amazing. It wasn't always like that, but that was amazing. What wasn't always like that? Sometimes I've taken women and it's scary. 
you know, I don't recommend going that month or that week or whatever it right. is. Usually the, the few days where the tide is like that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm manifesting state of the art mikvah where yes. you are. I mean, you know, what's interesting is that I know that you spoke about, and this is just coming to mind right now, but I know that you spoke about having your journey with what Hasidish kite meant, what Hasidus meant for you, what your Yiddish kite meant. And it's interesting to note that you ended up going on what I, as a young Chabad person, would call like some of the most hardcore type of shluchas. Yes and no. I mean, like, I don't ever have to wear socks or shaitel. <laughs> you know, like, like I don't I'm have to just there. Right. I'm kidding. You know, I just, like, go by my board, put my head down. <laughs> I'm very God forbid, that was totally a joke. That was a joke. I just want to clarify everyone that put my head down. Yes, I would never put my head down after buying pork. I would stand proud. In a way, there you have so much freedom and so much independence to be an individual. Yes, I understand that. Yes. Continue. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It was never a question to me that I wanted to live authentically. And just like that woman going to mikvah, it was so obvious to her. I think it's just obvious to me as like a child of Chabad that like I had to live authentically. And when it comes down to it, like I can't not be in perpetual conversation with fellow Jews trying to uncover the goodness and the light spiritually and very practically. Just like, what the heck are we doing here? The first time you have that thought as like a four-year-old. I'm still interested in having that conversation with people. What are we doing here? What are we? What's going on? Okay, let's do it. I also have grown out of the attachment to that question. And I just want to have a really nice life, which thank God I'm able to have here most of the time. And sometimes not. Sometimes it's really hard. TBH. What's the biggest struggle? The heat for me is really, really hard. Mm. It's really hot and humid and no infrastructure or resources. Like there's no target. There's no such thing. You know, like if I want new shoes or a container for storage, I either have to go to the main city, which is a five hour drive or a half hour flight away. Or I just fantasize about it. Or you just, <laughs> you just fans, or you just dream about it for weeks until someone brings it to you or, or never. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's like a local store. They have like food. They have food. Like There's produce. a couple of local stores that have food, of produce. Yeah, kosher food. Like, so I always bring my kosher dairy with whenever we fly back. I'll bring a suitcase okay. of dairy. My husband goes to milk cows whenever we're in the mood. So that's really nice. Sometimes he milks goats, which is even better. And then the head rabbi, Rabbi Spalter, does like three or four, a couple times a year, he'll do like shafting. So we have meat. So like chicken and meat is not shipped in. It's being shafted in Costa Rica. Yeah. yeah. Which is so much easier than a lot of people have it even in America. Why? I mean, I guess we also ship it from another city, but like there are a lot of people in America that don't have access to the kosher meat that they want. No, aren't there still like that? Right. Yeah. You're like, hello, I have a meat production happening. Just like the city over. We are spoiled here. And one day (laughs) we're going to have chickens. Like it's going to happen. For sure. You're going to learn how to clean them. Like it's going to be so accessible. No, No. absolutely (laughs) not. I like the farm girl look. I did work on a farm with chickens and I didn't eat chicken for like three to four years after that. So no, I'll never clean the chicken. No. Okay. 
not my thing. So it's good yeah. that you know that about yourself because that could have been yeah, in your yeah. future. <laughs> it was potentially in your future. Clearly written on my resume. Yeah. Will not I, clean the chicken. Will not learn to clean chickens in Costa Rica. So first of all, you answered so beautifully just that sentiment that like you just wanted to live authentically. And for you, this is what it means to live authentically. I just want to take a pause for a second for myself to appreciate how integrated that idea of shilhas is for you. Like I was like, wow, I wanted to live authentically. And for me, like there's no way that I can live authentically without being in perpetual conversation about Hashem and my Yiddishkeit. That is so beautiful. I don't want to make as if it's easy that like I have this ideal and I would do anything for this ideal. I think that that was the driving force behind making this decision. But there were a lot of things I struggled with during making the decision once we moved here. Till today, sometimes when I'll call my best friend, hi, Kaplan, and many others, as noted above. But I'll call my friends and just be like, I'm confused. Like, am I supposed to be here? I don't know. I know my mission. I know I need to be authentic. I'm going to be authentic, but am I in the right place? Like, I don't know. Did you ever wake up from a nap and just not know where you were, but like for an extended few seconds, not that like immediate, not knowing and then knowing it's like a really good few seconds and you're totally awake. You're like, remember where you are, buddy. You know, sometimes I'll have that where it's like, I don't know. I don't know. And that's odd for me because I'm someone who's like so connected, you know, like dating or friends. I always knew, do I vibe? Do I not vibe? And here it was like so clear that I had a purpose, but also so unclear if I fit. What would you say like caused that feeling of being disoriented or just unsure if this is where you needed mm-hmm. to be? I wasn't used to Sephardic style Yiddishkeit. And mm-hmm. I came here and was kind of placed into a role that I didn't even know I was taking on, which was like, Rabbanita, Rabbanichelanu, she's poor, she's here. And I was like, what? Hell no. I am not a Rabbanichelanu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to go back. Right. And, you know, I've slowly had to realize that, like, I'm not owned by other people's story that I happen to be in. That was a hard thing for me to let go of. And that's my own stuff that I carry of, like, feeling like I need to live out other people's scripts. So I had to let go of that and slowly come to the realization that I could be here and live here fully the way my husband and I envisioned without feeling tied down to other people's expectations and also to realize that maybe they don't even have those expectations and maybe what I wanted to offer is actually really appealing to them. Oh, interesting. And maybe I will have to adapt in some ways, but I don't have to sacrifice completely. I can adapt while maintaining myself, but it takes movement. It takes a lot of conversations. I speak with my sister-in-laws a lot. They're very smart. They get it. I don't have any sisters, but my husband has many and yeah, they're just the smartest people. I know. So they basically keep me sane and just like remind me that it's okay to figure it out slowly. Yeah. That's very real. Like feeling going into something from what I'm understanding, like you went into it being like moving to tourist to be a shlucha for like a touristy cool town in Costa Rica. And then now you're like the Rabbani. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Of this like Sparty community. And you're just like, how did I end up here? Yeah. That realization that you said that like, First of all, maybe I'm not even playing that part in their story, but even if I am, it's not my job to play the part in the story that they assigned to me. And I could still live out my shlucha life here the way that is true to who I am as a person. Yeah. 
And it's a realization I came to recently and I'm just building it in my head. I'm just like figuring out like, okay, so now what, you know, and also a big, big part. And I'm sure most of your listeners are women. I was four months pregnant when we moved and probably between five to eight times a day, I was throwing up and it just took everything out of me. So I didn't have physical energy to like, just like sit down and like find my center. So we moved. It was hot. I had a three-year-old and I was throwing up all day mm. and I was a rabbanit. So now I was the throwing up rabbanit, not just a throwing up sauna. So I was just like, I don't have any of myself. Yeah. I'm overwhelmed with the heat. I'm overwhelmed with the nausea. And I have this like identity that I didn't even know I was trying on, let alone keeping. So that was super overwhelming. And I had to like really, really slowly just break it down layer by layer, smooth it away. The fact that you were pregnant with your first child? Second, second. Second child, oh, okay. No, but I think that there's like a real identity shift, loss, et cetera, with pregnancy in general. So like doing that while moving to a new place and having it pan out differently than you expected, it's a lot at once. <laughs> it turned out that he was the biggest blessing in the world. And I knew, I knew for a few years that this like Neshama was coming. I already had his name. His name is Rafael Mayer. He has been a healing light beyond anything. I mean, you, you ask anyone who meets him and the whole pregnancy, I just decided to like, you know, fake it till you make it. In my high school, they used to say, be real till you feel real. So I kind of took on this thing that I wished I thought. And I started to think that thought daily, which was, I'm so grateful for this pregnancy. It's going to be an amazing birth. It's not going to be scary. It's not going to take forever. I would go and give birth right now if I could do it again the way it was. It was at home. I was on a bed. It was quiet. It was dark. There were loving, nurturing women with me. They were in a gunim. And he just came into the world. He didn't cry. And he just said, and he came on. Yes. And he's been so, just brought so much healing into my life. I'm so lucky. I'm really, really lucky. So the pregnancy brought about a lot of challenges, but also so much good. Sounds so cliche, but it did. And he's my kid, so yeah. I'll say it. I mean, things are, egg. things are cliche for a reason. And it's interesting how sometimes when something is a great light in our lives, a birth, a project, a move, a relationship, some type of growth in our lives, it does often come with that difficulty leading up to it. So that sometimes comes together. Right now, we're currently, I mean, feels like we're kind of in that experience, like that pregnancy of the world that is dark and intense. And you can just feel the light that is, I mean, listen, when I'm focused, I can feel this. I think that like, sometimes we get lost in the darkness or in the overwhelm or in the nausea of the pregnancy. But when you like stay focused on what is being birthed, it's like, there is a great light coming. Can I ask you a question? Like, how do you actively do that? Like when you see really sad news or just think about the situation, what image do you conjure up to remind yourself that there's something beautiful being birthed? For me, it's, I'm so not used to being asked a question. I'm like, is she asking me a question? <laughs> I'm, a I'm so excited. Yeah. Rabbanites dominate. They tell you what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. And that's why like, I definitely said the caveat of getting lost in the darkness and losing that perspective. Because it's not something that I would say, like, I wake up like a warrior and I'm like, a light is being birthed and I can see it so clearly. I also think that a lot of this pain, yes, it's our own, but it's also others. So being able to 
lean into the fact that it's tragic and sad is not necessarily something to fight within ourselves and definitely not something that I do fight. But I will say that the only way for me to maintain perspective is to lean into an empowered state, which is what can I Mm. offer in this situation and how could I accelerate my light that I give to the world? Because when I'm just a passive recipient of the darkness and I'm just like passively receiving the sad news and the deaths and the tragedy and also the anxiety about the future and like, what does this all mean? And like all of that and all of those conversations, it just puts me deeper into the pit. I'm not productive in helping bring that light into the world. And so because I believe that Mashiach is a collaborative thing that happens through all of us shining our own individual light in our lives that is how I recenter myself with, we are birthing something great. And I actually have a responsibility to participate in bringing that light. It's not, I'm not passive in this experience. I'm not receiving current events from somebody else. I'm a conscious creator of the news in the world and what happened. Wow. It's so empowering. It's, it's so impressive that you're able to do that. And I think that there's like a cognitive dissonance because we're not used to feeling like we have control over God's great plan, but we do, is what I'm hearing you're saying in a sense. Like, yes, there's a story we're hearing, but that's not the full picture and you're part of the full picture. So what are you going to do about it? And I want to also add, because I always feel that like sometimes we we skip out like the second half of the question, which is like the actual process of doing that. Like it's a beautiful sentiment that I think we're all familiar with that we can like consciously create the news of light in the world. But then like, what does that actually look like? For me, yeah. I was very lost after October 7th. I was very much lost in the news and in the stress and in the pain. And for me, practically, that was like boundaries with the news. That was like boundaries with social media. That was not following any accounts that I felt were trying to tug at my heartstrings in a way that like wasn't productive. Only receiving the news of what was going on in a way that seemed healthy or productive or supportive and just connecting with other Jewish women and like empathizing with each other and like being together with them, as opposed to just sitting on my own in my own home and experiencing the news. Like there are a lot of practical elements to this process that are not just like be a light in the world and everything will be okay. It's real life. It's it's work for me every day. Yeah, it is work every day. One thing that I was talking to my sister about this today, I try to remember if there was social media during the story of Purim, they would have been so depressed for a really long time. Yeah. You know, like Mm. it's going to be okay. Right. I mean, then I question him, like, I don't know, because like, we're not so cool anymore, but it's okay. Like we're on the side of Mordechai, you know, that's what I try to remind myself whenever I feel like, oh, it's just like a sentiment, you know, like, oh, be the light. And I try to feel like, what can I actually practically do? And I don't want to feel weighted down. That's what I think about. You know, it's going to be okay. So when you envision that it's going to be okay, it's a little easier to do something light. I get that. And also doing something light is not always doing something. It's also just being in a light-filled headspace and having a certain perspective on what's going on in the world. Yeah. Because then the action kind of naturally flows out of that. As opposed to, yeah, I'm going to fight this with light. (laughs) It doesn't work. Yeah, like toxic positivity is like so heavy and toxic. 
not very light. No. Also, I do think that it's necessary to give ourselves the space for, I mean, right now the world is very heavy and making sure that we do. I think the most powerful thing right now is gathering in person with other Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And I think that provides a lot of comfort and a healthy space to voice our anxieties to you said you speak to your sister-in-law's like just to talk it out like not to keep it all inside yeah to feel less alone like we're really not alone yeah we're really not they know it you know yeah you know tell me what your experience has been like how are you maintaining perspective you're obviously still in a position very much of giving during this time so you almost can't drown because you have to be the light you're the rubbing after <laughs> so I'm not so much the rabbi neat, remember? We graduated. No, I know. I'm I'm kidding. Kidding. No, now you're just, now you're just authentic Hana. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying. Tell me what's... There's a lot of listening. There's a lot of listening. This community had a lot, as most Israeli communities did, just being next to the people and listening, not expecting anything of them, even in terms of how they mourn. And what you were saying before about just having a light mindset, my husband says this all the time. This is just like how to create a really nice vibe at home. That's really the only thing I focus on. Sometimes I think like, I should say more to Helen. I should be more this. I should do that. And the only thing I really come to at the end of the day is instead of being really sad right now, I'm going to put on a nice song and make some treats and just like be chill and good with my kids. Just because I know I really can't handle going too deeply into it. I'm not such a warrior. I'm not like going out there with my light and fighting. I'm just, trying to be here and be light in that sense, like lighter. Yeah. Lighter. Yeah. And also be a source of light for the people in your lives. Like a, a source of light, light. Like I hear what you're saying, which is like the lightness in the light, not yeah, the lightness. heavy exactly. light. Yes. Because I exactly. do think that there's different ways of showing up as light and that lightness that we could provide to our families, to our environments. I think we really need it right now. And we really are craving that right now. So even just you embodying that, and your family feeling it, also us feeling it right now, that's powerful. Like that's healing right now. One of the first days, I think it was like the week after something or the day after I was crying and my son said, why are you crying? Just, um, I just said, I'm sad for some yidin that are in pain or, or got some boo-boos. I don't remember what I said, something very small. And he said, it's okay to cry, but also you don't have to because you can just talk to Hashem. And I've kind of been doing that. I'm just like talking to Hashem, you know? Yeah. And yeah, trying not to think too much. We both read the message. I shared it with you. So I'm just going to try to recap it and do it justice. There were so many elements there. And I apologize to the person who sent it in if I butcher any of your words. But she wrote so, so beautiful. Yeah. It was so beautiful. It was such a beautiful message. And this person said that by the time the episode ended, she was in tears, which was a common theme that people brought up. I think that when someone is just being themselves, it brings people to tears. And she had a couple of follow-up questions, which were all like really valuable in their own right. So I'm going to do one at a time. Hopefully I'm remembering each one correctly. But She asked about the process you spoke in your episode about sort of rejecting a definition of what it meant to be a chassid and choosing or reclaiming or building a new one. And she said, what was that process actually like? And what did you discover? Like, I don't have her exact wording, but essentially like, what did you choose or 
turn into? What's your definition of chasidus? What did I turn into? What happened that? Yeah, I, I actually just, I looked at it once. It was so beautiful. I was getting ready and I don't remember all the details, but I don't know. I feel like crying a little bit reading it. It was just so beautiful. Like I wanted to hug this person. That's what mm-hmm. people do in Santa here all the time. Everyone's hugging each other and booing and eyeing. And there's a lot of like, oh, emotional release and connection. So I'm on that train and I just wanted to hug her. It was so beautiful. It. Yeah, it really was. So the question is a really good question. What was I rejecting? I was definitely rejecting a do and don't think mentality. Yeah, I hated that. I hated that. It was such a contradiction. Like you're purporting to be Chabad, but you don't encourage anyone to think as an individual. That's gross. Either be open and say, we don't like when you think, or you have to be honest and say, we love when people think. And sometimes it's really hard when you don't think the way we like. So that's really what I didn't like. There wasn't space to like think differently necessarily. I mean, if you went to any of the system schools, you know what that's like, right? You, you wear your hair a little differently. You wear a different color sock or whatever it is. And there's like talk and rejection. And it's like, they're just missing the point. And I didn't like that because their whole message was we have the main point. We have Hasidus. We have the secrets of Tyra. But then we also have, I saw you were wearing black socks with purple dots. So you're going to have to go home. Mm. It just didn't make sense to me. It wasn't honest. You know, I could handle rules and I could handle following rules that I don't like. A hundred percent. I respect that. I just couldn't handle the intellectual dishonesty in the name of Hasidism, mm. so to speak. So, yeah. What was the Do you think that it was like, what? I was going to ask what the second part of the question was. Oh, the second part of the question, even though like I'm interested in probing a little bit there, like to what you just said, but the second part of the question, just to prepare you for what's coming or what you said was, what did you choose for yourself? Like you spoke about in the part one of this live, you spoke about personal authenticity and how personal authenticity is what led you to go on Shulchas to Costa Rica, which like I said, I mean, you were like, it's not that hardcore. I'm like, it's hardcore. You're like, I'm not, I refuse to learn how to prepare chickens. <laughs> no, it's not hardcore at all. She has to say it. Like, <laughs> I will not learn how to do chicken. It's not hardcore. It is hardcore, um, but not, not in that hardcore way. Yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> no, but the question was, is like, what was not definition? Because I think a lot of this is about not being limited by a definition of what something means, even our own. But what was that process? And what was that like new? Uh, every time I want to say a word, I'm like, it's a too much of a container. How about this? Let's simplify okay. it. Yes. What does it mean to you to be a chassid? There you go. I have to think about it. What does it mean to be a chassid? I feel like it means to live authentically. And part of that, like we discussed in the podcast, comes with the responsibility of being honest with who your authentic self is. But I think that being a chassid is to live authentically as a Jew and show up like that in all your relationships. And how you receive, how you give, how you nurture, everything. Some people that looks like being a shlacha. Some people that just, I don't know, looks like being an architect. Yeah, I don't have any like profound understanding yet. You know what it means to be a chassid. I don't really know. It's just, this is who I am. I think like part of it is just cultural. Like I'm used to it. I'm so used to being surrounded by people post-system who are honest thinkers and deep people who show up in the world fully. 
as Jews, as Hasidic Jews. I think part of that comes with learning Hasidus. I think we forget that we come from a people who study. Like when I learn, I'm completely transformed in every way, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. Wow. You know, like Hasidus is, is a revolutionary method. It's a revolutionary way of operating this machine. So I think that being a Hasid is like really tapping into the Hasidus. Obviously the Rebbe, which I don't think I have such a deep understanding of. It's just so obvious to me. That's basically what I would say for now. Maybe I'll think about it and I'll come up with a better answer. I love, love what you said about being showing up in the world authentically. It means being in touch with who you are on every level and expressing that in the world. And you mentioned in response to the question about rejection of like, what were you rejecting within the definition of being a chassid or a chassidish guide, et cetera. You said you were rejecting that purporting to respect and desire questions, but sort of shutting down any type of differences and that people were shutting down on you, I guess, is, was your experience. I'm curious to know, just because obviously a lot of people have angst around this. Did you feel like that was done in the name of Hasidus or did you feel that that was flawed humans' ways of running a system? I know that it was both. And it wasn't done in the name of Hasidus. It was done in the name of Hasidishkeit, which mm. is just someone kind of made up, I think. I mean, not fully, because there has been for, you know, centuries this practice of mystics and Hasidic thinkers, and there's an automatic way of living. Once you have the diet of Hasidus, you're gonna start exuding a certain lifestyle, 100%. But I think that the closed-mindedness in the name of Hasidishkeit it's not a reflection of Hashem's Ratzin. And I don't think it actually helps to produce people who want to be connected to Hasidus. What effect did it have on you? I just saw it as inauthentic. I didn't see it as being a reflection of Hasidus. I saw it as being someone's manufactured version of Hasidishkeit. I never thought that our schools were Hasidish schools. They were very Musar- almost like Christian influence kind of thinking, if I could say that, as opposed to Hasidish schools. You're saying like there's this term Hasidishkeit, which broadly for the uninitiated is like the description for what it looks like to integrate Hasidus and Hasidic practice into your life. So that's for yeah. anyone who's not Chabad, wondering like, what is this word? And also what they added was your good when you do X, what you just described. Okay. And you're not so good when you do Y. Okay. So the good at versus bad really bothered me because it was so not nuanced and it wasn't real. Well, also like the struggle that you had that I think a lot of people have is that the definition of what that means really is open to interpretation for each individual. And within a certain system or framework, it becomes very clearly defined by a set of rules that are not halakhically based, that are very stringently enforced, either through the rule system specifically, or like through some type of emotional influence or coercive control. We are going hard tonight. Yeah. (laughs) 
going to be the big article, coercive control in Chabad. Does it or does it not exist? And if it does, where might we find it? No, I think, No, I, I mean, something that I always think about when we talk about, you know, system that we grew up in is that there's a societal system too. And every system I yes. feel has, but being Chabad actually, I think makes you eat very critical of societal systems too. Cause like the Rebbe, it feels like very like anti-establishment in a certain way, but every system has this struggle and this issue, which is like the individual gets sacrificed for the sake of the collective. And there's like all of these struggles are very natural to a system. So I think yeah. that even though we are sort of appropriating the term Hasidishkeit within our system, it's a problem with a system in general. Yeah. I don't think systems were really created for individual humans with individual souls and individual lights to shine in the world. We have issues with them, but it's also really good that they exist. We need them. And also, I don't think that, I mean, in general, like societal systems too, I think could crush people. Right. I mean, you could say that in a sense, Hasidus is a system. It's a way of thinking. And when done right, it works really well. Just to go back to what you were saying, I love what you said. I think that all systems and all communities have some sort of toxicity. And it's not, oh, it's just those, you know, Hasidic Jews. Not at all. And I don't think it's even a reflection of Hasidic Jews. I actually think it's a reflection of the influence of certain traumas that our communities experience collectively from non-Jews, from specifically in our community, you know, a Soviet era trauma which is a whole nother topic. And I think that that had a big influence in how our educators think. I mean, if you just spend a little bit of time with someone who grew up in the Soviet Union, you get why our system looks the way it looks. But yeah, that's a whole different topic. What's the connection there that you're seeing? Curious. Okay, so I come from a Russian background. So like in Russia, if you stepped out of line, your life was at risk. Fast forward to our school system, there's that same sense of urgency of if you step out of line, there's something essential at risk. So don't think, speak, or act differently because it's actually dangerous. And there's that like fear. It's very fear-based. And I'm not talking about fear like Yira. It's not Ava Yira based. It's like Pachat. There's this like fear. Yeah. Do you really, you want to go down this route? Here we go. <laughs> you see there's okay. like so much, like the way your eyes sparkle when you ask that question. <laughs> Ah, exposing Chabad. You're salivating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're right that systems are good for people too. Yeah. I don't think of Hasidic thought as a system at, at all, personally. When I think of a system, I think of something that is necessary and also has its sacrifices. Like in order for us to exist in society, it's necessary, but there are certain real sacrifices that if we're aware of them, we could protect ourselves and our children from those sacrifices, like the sacrifice that you're describing of, I guess, individual expression or thought processes, like the danger, for example, when you get shut down with a question, I don't know, in a classroom environment, let's say, which I don't know if you had that experience. I personally did not have that experience in, in my upbringing, like being shut down for a question, for example. But if you do, the danger is not necessarily in that act of being shut shut down because you could ask that question again and someone else will take a crack at it. The danger is when we shut that question down within ourselves and when the system is internalized and like we shut down our questions, our curiosity, our individual spirit and exploration because we've kind of internalized that sameness that we see around us. Whenever you go to 
any type of private school, there's going to be like a uniform or things that are accepted, not accepted. But I guess the question is, is do we internalize it? And that's why I think a conversation like this is important because anyone who has internalized it or any ways that we have internalized it get brought to the light when someone's like, these are my problems with the system. And I think that's also why it's so provoking for people to hear these conversations, but go ahead. Right. I do want to just say that there was never any judgment on my part. And I think I said this in the podcast, like I didn't judge the people who made up the system because I, I really did see them as people, you know? So when I'm criticizing the system, I think that I'm really just stating certain facts and there, there's no blame at all, especially having that insight of coming from a Russian background and seeing how it's so clearly influenced the Chabad Lubavitch system. But it's complex. I feel like my real issue was just the hypocrisy of it, where you see, even till today, people who, like you said, their voices got shut down. And it's not that they shut down their individuality. I think it's that they shut down a part of them that was so God curious, but that part of themselves was made to feel rebellious instead of seeking. So their sense of self was warped and their sense of their spiritual selves was warped. So obviously to protect their inside, they put a wall between this system, which was purporting to be Hasidus. And I think with that, maybe lost a little bit of connection to their curious Neshama, I think. I'm just thinking this through now. Yeah. I never lost my curiosity. I just rejected their version of listening, of reacting to questions and being different. Like, you see how the Rebbe interacted with people. He just literally loved every Jew. And that's what we're taught. But it's not what we necessarily experience. I'm not saying that means we need a free-for-all. I'm not into that. But there's definitely an underlying sentiment of rejection if you don't follow and fall into this box that certain human beings have created and called Hasidic. It's just, it's not true. Construct that certain people who were Hasidic Jews created. But who's to say that's the only definition? Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. I thought what you said about people shutting down, having a warped understanding of their own spiritual identity due to internalizing an interpretation of how they're basically like their spiritual self was interpreted in a certain way. Yeah. So then that warps the way that they see their own spiritual self, their own divine soul. And you said that as opposed to the individuality. To me, when I speak about individuality, like to me, that is part of the divine soul. Like I think that that's... Yeah uniqueness that is coming from a person's seeking questions, the unique questions that a person has, the unique things that they're drawn to, unique types of Torah that they want to learn naturally. Like those pieces come together. So that's why like you could, you might argue that like having purple dots on your socks or I don't know, whatever, like that is shutting down individuality. But what does that have to do with the spiritual self? But I think that that desire for self-expression is directly connected to the divine soul's desire for self-expression. I love that. I love that. Well, you're an artist. So that's why you went there. That's why I went there. I went there. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I always go there. Yeah. So cool. So cool. All right. Should we answer which part? The second part. 
of that question. Which one? Should we leave that? She asked, once I rejected that version of Hasidishkeit, what did I then choose to take on? Yeah. I think I'm still figuring it out, honestly. I'm still figuring it out. You know, I'm authentic and I show up and I have a relationship with God and I'm still working on it. I'm really, really still working on it. Truly. Still figuring it out. Yeah. I'll keep you guys posted. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> sure. Touch base again to let us know where you're on. <laughs> yeah. This was a question that came in is, would you say that you received judgment for your journey? And if not, tell us. I don't know. I think that there are definitely moments of perceived judgment where I thought or felt I was being judged, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I was actually being judged. And it doesn't really bother me so much now at all, actually. It doesn't bother me at all because I know that I'm living as truthfully as I can in this moment. Yeah. I really think people are, are much kinder. And I think that when people are being judgmental, it's just coming from a place. We all know this. It's just coming from a place of insecurity. Even when we judge, it's coming from a place of insecurity. So yeah, judgment doesn't bother me. And I'm not even sure if I've been judged. And yeah, I think so. I actually love how you differentiated between like, how do I know if anyone actually, did I perceive judgment? I did, but that perception, as soon as you get rid of that perceived judgment, even if it it no longer matters if someone is or isn't, because it really is in the way that we are internalizing that judgment, what other people are doing with their lives and time or or headspace. And I think that it actually goes by topic. Like it doesn't bother me if someone might be judging me when it comes to my Judaism but there might be something else that I'm still insecure about and still working on that will bother me if I feel someone might be judging me about. So like finish your thoughts. So therefore it's a work in progress. Like, right. Okay. Like it's not you like, like over being judged. Yeah. 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 No, I was just yeah. like, I wanted to like wrap it up. I get it. That basically yeah, like, when yeah. you feel there are different elements of your life, some where you're like, I'm confident that I'm on my path on my journey. I know where I'm going. So I don't hear or like see judgment and other areas where it's not like that. Okay. I want to end off with this question. It's a question that often gets lost, which is this real process of what this actually looks like. And that question was, she mentioned that there was like a slight comment that you made, which was about the struggle between different elements of who we are sometimes. And the example that you gave was, you know, I'm a jungle mom and like, I don't want to cover my hair. Kind of like you threw it out very lightly, but you know, this is what my divine soul wants, et cetera. So her follow-up question to that was, how do you navigate that bridge without resentment? How do you move from like doing something that God wants when you really don't want to do it, but like do it in an integrated way when there's like a part of you, like how do you integrate those two parts of yourself? How do you make that decision? Yes, I'm covering my hair in a way that's like whole, what's the process there? Give it to us. I first want to just send out some compassion because I think that there are people who struggle a lot more than I do with this this whole concept. And maybe this is the same thing that I've always had where it's like, because I'm so sure that MS is MS, even though I struggle, it doesn't hurt as much as I feel like it would hurt if I was really, really questioning. So because I'm so sure intellectually and just in my psyche, I'm so sure that this is truth. Even if I might have a desire that contradicts that truth, it's not as hard to 
end up doing what I perceive to be the right thing as it might have been if I really, really in my psyche and my soul and my body felt like it might not be the right thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Practically speaking, I just got a new wig and I feel so nice in it and I like it. I also live in the jungle, so it's fine. I just wear tehel most of the time. I complain to my mushbia and I read a lot about marriage from Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg. I personally love his Torah. It's very mystical, but very practical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, it's basically what I use as a reminder to get back to what I really think. You know, like, okay, I I love theater and film, so I'm going to, you know, make a movie reference again. But, you know, like when there's like one character, there's like two best friends, like one friend is like totally acting crazy. So he like slaps his face. It's like, you know, get with it, Bob, or whatever. So it's kind of like what I do to my soul to like get with Kana. I just like, I'll read some Tyra. Or I'll think about sensuality and sexuality and what that really means, what marriage is, what a body is, what hair is, and that kind of centers me. So I would say to this person asking the question, maybe do what centers you because your center might be a little different than mine and your way of getting to your center might be a little different than mine. But if you're living from your center, from your godly center, then I don't think you can go wrong. And also, everyone covers their hair differently. You know, people in Eretz wear mitpachat. We wear wigs. In Williamsburg, they wear wigs with a hat. So I can never say what anyone should do in that regard. But I would say try and center yourself, and go from there. Nice. Yeah. I'm curious. We didn't address the resentment. I'm curious to know if resentment ever comes to mentioned resentment again. We don't have the question with us, which is making me struggle a little bit. But does resentment ever come into the picture when it comes to areas of your display that you struggle with? I'm never resentful. I'm jealous. I'm wishful. I love fashion. I love being free. I mean, I'm lucky. Like I can walk barefoot all day here. And I've done it. And no one thinks that I. Everyone's barefoot, you know? So I'm very lucky that I'm not a shlucha in Midtown, Manhattan. I'd be uh, putting the psych board if I was walking there. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I just sit with that feeling of like wanting to talk to my husband about it or my friends. Sometimes I think like, oh, I'm really going to do research on this specific topic. But then I just get busy with life and I don't do research and I'm, I'm okay. And then I come back to feeling a little wishful and maybe a little jealous, but I'm never resentful. Maybe I'm not the right person to answer that question. No, I think you answered it as yourself yeah yeah do you want to answer it well i don't necessarily experience that about hair covering i have to think about a specific area and like how i bridge that gap i definitely resonated with like finding your spiritual core and center when you are more clear on the why you spoke about this beautiful metaphor in your episode where you spoke about a dancer who has a strong core when you have that strong core, like whatever movements you're doing feel more fluid and natural and they're able to be flexible because of that strong core. And even that flexibility of like, how are you going to cover your hair? How is this practically going to express itself in your life? It doesn't feel stilted. So you're not even like, even when you're making those choices to express your values in a way that is particular to you, it feels like this like natural dance as opposed to a stilted movement. So I definitely relate to that idea of like finding that strong inner core very often, like, you know, being more spiritually connected in that area 
you know, you're like learning and then getting busy, wanting to learn and then getting busy with life. Yeah. And also sometimes just like feeling free, I think, like to explore, like sometimes I do explore and I'll go through periods of time where I cover my hair a certain way and then I'll go back. And it really is like that dancer. And sometimes ooh, my phone is on me a low battery, but sometimes a dancer is like very constrained and that also takes flexibility. And sometimes she's like completely stretched out and like reaching into different parts that she hasn't touched before. And I try to let myself do that with my Judaism. You know, sometimes it takes me places where I think I'm not going to go back there. And sometimes I'm still sitting with it and wondering and thinking and questioning. I really don't know. And I'm just okay with it. Ish. Cause but something that you did say was that I'm so sure in my psyche that MS is MS. Yeah. Are you always so sure? Like, do you carry that certainty with you always? Yeah. And where does that doubt or that exploration come into that? I think it, the doubt is more in terms of practice, but it's not in terms of like MS, like, oh, like the godly coding, like this world is a godly code and I'm yeah. going to do, and I'm going to show up that way. And I'm going to spend my life trying to figure out what the most optimal way of doing that is. What do you mean by practice? Religious practice. Okay. Like Menhagen, right? Like some people cover their hair more. Some people cover their hair less. I'm sure there are shlafais who maybe they hear me that I go barefoot and it's, you know, a shanda. But I go barefoot and I'm not shanda-ish about it. It's okay. So when I say practice, that's what I mean. Just how we integrate Yiddishkeit. Yeah. But yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Nice. I'm 100% sure. I'm 100% sure. You're pretty. Like, I'm 100%. 100%. sure. I'm 100%. <laughs> I love it. I'm sure that someone will have the follow up question of like, what made you so sure? You know, because not everyone feels that certainty. I don't know if you have time to share before your phone dies. It's so interesting because it's like a lot of times we're, we look to other people mm. for answers. It really mm. does help. It really helps like to listen to podcasts. But at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself that question. Like, when are you ever sure of anything and why and how did you get there? There are some people involved with really unhealthy things, a business deal, a friendship, whatever it is, and they're so sure about it. And then when they get to the other side, it's like, oh, I should have seen, you know? And then some people are super sure about things and it is actually real and healthy and they're integrating it. So I think everyone has to ask themselves that question. If you're curious to hear about me, how am I so sure? I think it probably comes from the really positive experience I had as a child. My mother was very connected to the earth and the world. There wasn't a separation between us being godly Jews and also being in God's world. We spent a lot of time in nature, a lot of time surrounded by writers and artists and going to museums and just like having a full sensory experience of Hashem's world and having honest conversations about it. So never felt like God Hasidishkeit was happening in a vacuum and I had to stay in that vacuum. And if I ventured out, then I would never be able to get back in. Mm. You know, it was just it's like a very well-rounded exposure to Yiddishkeit. The opposite of kind of what we're describing in the system. It was very unsystem-like, just like come and be. And you were Jew enough just because you were. And then it was filled with all this like really rich storytelling and dancing and piano playing and different characters and just the most amazing people that we grew up with. All the Bali Chuva of the 60s and 70s. Like, they're so cool. They really got it. I love that. that. Yeah. So like growing up with that vibrant, full experience of life where 
MS was not a compartmentalized thing, but it was something that was sort of woven into the fabric of everything that you did. It was the fabric and it wasn't something you did. It was just something that was, and you could tap into it or not. Like the radio waves are going. Yeah. It's there. It's in you. You don't have to, someone wrote, where did you grow up? I grew up in Crown Heights. Yeah. But we spent a lot of time upstate New York. My mom is from South Africa. So we'd spend a lot of time in really raw nature there. I think that's just something I want to give to my kids. And hopefully anyone listening would want to give to their kids too, which is like, you are a Jew. This is just the way things exist. You don't have to do or say, or you just are like, this is the way it is. Okay. Now you choose how to show up and how much of that diet you want to partake in. My phone battery is super low. Okay. I'm going to die soon. Well, let's end off there, which I love. I love that as a closing message from you. I think that's a beautiful piece to end off with is just, you are Jew enough. You are a Jew, no matter what you choose to do, no matter who you are. Yeah. More than ever. It's just, we are family given. And, and even as we fluctuate that truth within us does not. So. Absolutely. And as you're fluctuating, that's part of the truth telling. That's part of it. And I feel like the more we embrace that, the more MS will show itself and it will feel there will be less dissonance. And maybe that's Gula, like that complete wholeness and just like integration. Yeah. 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 Tanya, you are unreal. You are so unreal. I have a million and one questions. I'm starting a podcast (laughs) called Who Ask Tanya Questions. You're really just (laughs) so wonderful and so cool that you do this. And I've had such a good time talking to you. And I have a good time talking to most people. But this was like, this was so fun. You bring it, Hannah. You're the, you, you brought the vibe. Thank you so much. It was, I loved connecting with you too. It's been really fun. I love that we got to do this follow-up yeah. edition. It was great. So thank you. Okay, well, I'll see you next week on We Ask Tanya yeah. Questions, episode one. <laughs> Bye. Airing in five days on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Well, it's going to take me a couple more weeks to get the equipment all the way to Costa Rica. Give me time. First, you'll fantasize about it for seven Yes. Days. And then you might make it to the store, but they won't have the right. Done. So we'll, we'll reconvene in a couple oh, years. No. Oh, oh, okay. Let's do that. Fine. A couple years, 2028. 20, yeah. Perfect. I'll be there. Tanya, thank Bye. you. Thank Bye. you all for joining. Thank Bye. Bye everybody. Bye. If you enjoyed today's episode and it sparked something for you, touched your heart or touched a raw nerve or just got you thinking, I want to invite you to keep this godly conversation going. Share the episode with a friend. Tag us on social media with your follow-up thoughts. Let's get the truths of Torah into the atmosphere. The world needs it right now more than ever. You can email us at info at humanandholy.com. Find us on Instagram at humanandholy. And you can sponsor an episode or give it any amount through our site, humanandholy.com slash sponsor. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single one. And while you're at it, feel free to leave us a five-star rating. It helps other people find the podcast and it brings us joy. Thanks for listening and we'll talk next week.